Hey, race fans, Hall of Famer Daryl Waltrip here. You know it's time to drop the green flag on another edition of Leaning Right and Turning Left with Sadler and the Senator, powered by Pacematic. So, hey, pull those belts tight one more time. Here's my buddy Hermie Sadler and Senator Bill Stanley. Boogity, boogity, boogity. Let's see what they have to say, boys and girls. I'm Virginia State Senator Bill Stanley, and as always, I'm Leaning Right. And I'm former NASCAR driver and Fox Sports analyst, Hermie Sadler, and I'm turning left. This is once again leaning right and turning left with Sadler and the Senator, powered by Pacematic. Senator? Hermie, what are you doing? I'm uh, sitting in my office at Sadler Brothers Oil Company in Emporia, Virginia, and me and my buddy, BP, Brian Porch, believe it or not, we are trying to find some fuel to, <laughs> to serve find our customers fuel. and get uh, put at our truck stop so we can keep America's uh, dream alive and keep our trucks on the road and keep business operating. That's what I'm doing. So what are you doing? Uh, I'm sitting here at the Stanley Law Group Mothership in the Stanley Law Group Conference Room, which is now the Stanley Law Group Studio. Talking to you, sitting with Brad Tuesday, our executive producer, uh, and uh, getting this podcast cast started. We've uh, been away for a week, and now we're coming back and coming back strong. And I think this time we're going to try something a little different. You know, our guy, Double J, Jeff Jarrett, our boss in this podcast, uh, one of the head guys at Podcast Heat that uh, lovingly puts on this podcast for us. They're great. We love them. If you ever have an interest in a podcast and you're uh, successful at it, then these are the guys you need to talk to. But he, you know, he said to us, we were doing great with the guests. You're doing wonderfully with the guests. We've had a guest on every show. Why don't you try one where you and I just kind of bullshit and uh, and see what happens? And I'm thinking, okay, let's give that a shot this week because then we can either figure out that this is something we can do every now and then, like a lot of podcasts do. They just sit there and talk. Or this will be a one-time thing, and then we'll go back to the guests and uh, never do it again. So what do you think? So you and I have got to sit here for about 90 minutes and try to figure out what to talk to each other about and make yeah. it entertaining and funny <laughs> while also That's... not telling personal secrets that we have on each other. Yeah, so what I want you to do is close your eyes and imagine that we're on the phone every night, and then we'll just try to run it that well, except for the personal stuff. Um, but we're going to try to do it that way. I'm, that I, look, I'm glad I got you. You've been, I know you've been busy. You've had several high-profile cases you've been working on. And I really told my wife this week, I said, I think Senator Stanley is cheating on me because you've been kind of <laughs> kind of spotty with the communication. Yeah, I apologize. It's uh, Well, you know, part of it has been trying to get your court cases in while you can because right now, you know, in the Virginia General Assembly where I serve as a senator, uh, that's why this podcast is named that, we're kind of hanging on with 47 pieces of legislation coming down the pike that still haven't been finalized and configured. We've got a budget sitting out there as well. Uh, we have uh, a lot of things that are left up in the air, and we're in a special session. So as a lawyer, you can't really plan your trial dates around that. Right now we're hearing that we're going to go back in the last week, two weeks of May. Um, you know, that's, what, uh, 14 days from now. And so we're moving things around, but we're also trying to get court cases in uh, because a lot of my clients that have hired me, and I'm, I'm very grateful that they have chosen me, they want their stuff done, and it's just tough. And a lot of the stuff that's going on right now for me has been stuff that I had to move from January and February when we were in session at the time, or even last year 
when court cases had to get moved around when we were in special session and regular session at that time. So it's, it's tough, man. It's, it's gotten to the point where, uh, one of my paralegals, Debbie, uh, she has probably more to do with the calendar than she does with regular business. And that takes up a lot of her day, but it's been tough. And, uh, so Look, yeah, I understand, I'm not cheating on you. I understand you have other people to take care of <laughs> and you have other clients but I just miss you, man. <laughs> it's okay. Come here. Come here. It's okay. I'll rock you. So, so let's do no, this. It's, it's, you know, you know, it's we, not cheating. People, no, I'm not. I would never cheat on you, Hermie. There's just, there's only one Hermie in my life. You know, I heart Hermie, and uh, hopefully, Hermie hearts me. So let's do this. Um, we have leaning right moments that are up your alley. We have turning left moments. That are I thought up you were going to say something else. But let's my ass. let's flip the script a little bit. Let's have it where I get to ask you questions relating to politics or law or uh-huh. anything on that nature, and then you get to in turn ask me questions about racing, whether it be NASCAR Darlington this past weekend, whether it be the Smart Modified Tour, whether it be. All things in between. And by the way, we need to make sure our listeners know that we have not prepped each other on these questions. We have not. This is kind of new. All right, I'm in. I'll do it. Of course, when I'm asked those uh, political questions, those are sponsored by Charlie's Waterfront Cafe still, a beautiful place in downtown. By the way, have have you gotten a check yet? Yes. Were you able to cash it or did he tell you to hold it for a while? (laughs) He told me to hold it. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I know all about those kind of customers. Yeah, I got I got yeah, those too. Yeah, some guy named Frank Jones. I don't know who that is. Uh, no, he's he's great. So uh, Charlie's Waterfront Cafe, a beautiful restaurant overlooking the Appomattox River, right next door to Greenfront Furniture in downtown Farville. Great food, great fun, great atmosphere. You can sit there at one of their tables or out on the patio deck, eat a great meal, and and talk to each other. You can ask the person that's across the way from you a political question, and they ask you a racing question just like we're going to do today. Do that at Charlie's Waterfront Cafe, the sponsor of the Leaning Right Moments, which will come in pieces today. And now we're going to unfurl, unfurl Hermie Sadler's new sponsor for Turning Left. We got one? Lay it on me. No, I thought you had one. No. You know that one? I'm a loser. Dude, you know like everybody. I tried selling myself for a couple weeks. That didn't work. Then I tried giving myself away, and that hadn't worked either. Again, um, we have a potential sponsor. You just have to pull the trigger uh, for the coalition to draft Hermie Sadler for state senate, sponsored by Lee Talley and his son, Harry Talley, who's a great listener of this podcast. So, Look, I mean, the, are you in? Because then I'll the, just seal the, the deal on that. The Hermie Sadler for Senate talk is fun for me and you to laugh about and talk about, but that's not putting money in the bank. That's not putting cash in hand. So we need to find a real paying sponsor. Well, I mean, they're asking for three, three sponsors. I mean, three episodes. So uh, I'm going to seal that deal. The next episode that we have of this podcast will have that as a sponsor. You're just going to have to tolerate that. I'm making a business executive decision here for you, brother. And then from there, once they see what success that sponsorship brings, then you're going to have just the floodgates open and everybody's just be coming in saying, hey, how do we sponsor the turning left moment? I know that to be true. Sounds like an unlikely plan to happen, but I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I like it. All right. All right. Well, let's, let's go. How has your week been otherwise? Now, look. I'm going to ask you a racing question, but this this seems to be something that I want to talk about quickly because you just mentioned something that's 
really important. As I was driving into work this morning, uh, minding my own business, wondering if I was going to text you or call you today, how I was going to communicate with you, how you were doing, thinking about you. Then I hear on the radio that the price of gas in the Commonwealth of Virginia is the highest it has ever been on average, ever, ever, ever. And I think they said three forty-five a gallon for regular. Four thirty. And now you come. Oh, I'm, I'm is I the average. Transposed? I mean, so now you're telling me that, quite frankly, uh, you can't find gas. Right. Is that right? We had three in days. Fr- three days in the last week where we could not purchase gas from the rack from the from the terminals around Virginia. And as I sit here today, it is May the 10th on Tuesday afternoon, and my truck stop in Suffolk, Virginia, has no diesel fuel there. There is a lack of supply. Uh, That's actually at our truck stops. Those that know our facilities know that Pilot handles the diesel fuel at our truck stop locations on a lease program we do with them. So if Pilot, with all the pool and resources they have, if they can't get fuel from the terminal to locations, that certainly uh, sounds off an alarm. But so you're right. I mean, gas and fuel, the prices have been steadily going up really since before Joe Biden took office. I don't know why people are surprised. It's like he told everybody what he was going to do, and like people are surprised that he's doing it. He said during his campaign that he was going to phase out fossil fuel. And every policy decision he's made related to fossil fuels has been to phase it out. Now, I guess nobody could have predicted that along with all these failed policies that Russia would invade Ukraine. And while that's not what has caused the problem, that has certainly made it worse because what's happened in the last three weeks, Senator, is on top of all our other problems, is our oil producers are now exporting way more product overseas than they were a month ago because these other countries have decided they do not want to purchase crude from Russia as a to penalize them for their actions in Ukraine, which I understand. But so what's happened, instead of the Gulf Coast sending product to the East Coast, it's a bidding war between us and other countries that need product So the major manufacturers and providers are selling to the highest bidder, which in most cases is turns into a, our product being exported. Now, if you look back about a year and a half ago, we were totally independent when it came to energy. Now we're not. So now we're exporting a lot of product. And now we have a shortage of product and supply and demand kicks in. Now you've got a situation where fuel is outrageous. Gas prices are outrageous if you can get it. So the, 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 the narrative turns from people complaining about how much gas costs to can we get any. Hmm. So it's a bad problem getting worse by the day. I, this is amazing, though. I mean, so a truck stop where truckers depend on getting diesel fuel so that they can carry in the supply chain those things that are in their rigs, in their 
flatbeds, whatever, can't get fuel, how are they going to carry other products to market? That's a, it's a real problem. I mean, it's as we sit here right now, it's about 2.30 in the afternoon. We hadn't had fuel in Suffolk since 7 o'clock this morning. And it's going to be a, a problem not only across the state of Virginia, but all across the United States. Because as I said, now a lot of the product that we need in this trying time is being exported because the you know we're, there, there's a bidding war. And, and I, I tried to explain this to my wife last night, and I know you'll get this. So Joe Biden, even before he is elected, he says, we're going to phase out fossil fuel. That's what he said he's going to do. Okay. So now we're in this trying time with crude and, and with, with fossil fuel. Now he's basically asking manufacturers or producers of crude oil to say, I know I told you that I was going to break up with you, but, you know, the new girl is not ready yet. So in the meantime, I need you to step back up and help me out until I can break up with you again. You know, and I told Angie last night, the other night, it's like, you know, look at it this way. Suppose I had asked Angie to go with me to prom back in high school, and she reluctantly said yes. So two weeks later, this new girl, young girl, comes to school. She's the new, the new girl on campus. So I go to Angie and say, Angie, this new little young girl has come to school, and I really would rather take her to prom. Okay, then I find out that this new girl can't go to prom with me. Maybe she's got another date or maybe she doesn't like me or whatever. Then I go back to Angie and say, Angie, this this new young girl uh, turned me down. Now, will you go to prom with me again? She's going to tell me to F off. (laughs) And so people come to me all the time and say, you know, we have all these leases available that we can you know, drill in the United States. Why are we not drilling? I said, this president has already said he's phasing you out. So why would anybody spend the hundreds of millions of dollars that it would take in infrastructure and equipment and labor to get back up and running, which it would take six months to do it, get back up and running for then the president to come back to to you again and say, okay, now you're gone again once I don't need you anymore. And that's really what, you know, in layman's terms, what's going on. But the, the, the worst part about it is you mentioned the truck drivers trying to carry our freight up and down the interstates. How about in my case, a big portion of my business is also loggers, farmers, construction workers. I've got people all across South South Virginia. In fact, I just took a call right before we got ready to start uh, taping this podcast from a good customer of mine. And he's saying, Hermie. Am I going to have fuel in the next couple of weeks on my job sites? What's and, your answer? You know, and my answer is, as a company, we've had to make some decisions, not good economic decisions for our company, but we've had to turn down a lot of new customers uh, and make some decisions on our long-term customers that have been with us the longest. They're the ones we're going to take care of first. So now we've got to keep an eye on our not only ability to buy fuel every day, but also our very small supply that we've got in bulk plant and in storage. We've got to try to take care of our loyal customers that we've had for years and years. And so, uh, but the prices are out of sight. 
up over $2, you know, in the last uh, two years. So that's a whole other set of problems for a small business like me. If you just take my accounts receivables, that let's just say, Senator Stanley, if, if you were a, if you were in the forestry industry and you operated one logging crew, let's just say, which a lot of people in your part of the state do. There are a lot of people in the forestry, loggers. Yep. On a typical week, if I would typically go work you every week, I would bring you maybe $3,000 worth of fuel to operate your skidders and your bulldozers and things of that nature. Off-road fuel, non-highway fuel. Well, I just said fuel has basically doubled in the last two years. So what would typically cost you $3,000, Senator, is now costing you six. So you take all my hundreds of customers that are now paying these higher prices for fuel, which is all self-inflicted in my opinion, my accounts receivables at Seller Brothers Oil Company in the last 18 months has gone up over a million dollars. So I take that amount of money plus the additional amount of money it takes me to keep my bulk plant full. That's another 400 additional thousand dollars just because the cost, the increased cost that I'm incurring. So that's a million five, a million six of cash flow that's just gone out of my business to just do normal operating business. So then you take that and you mentioned supply chain issues. You mentioned labor shortage and increased labor cost and all these other things. It is a toxic environment for small businesses all across the Commonwealth of Virginia and across the country because of this skyrocketing cost of fuel and inflation and other issues that, um, you know, people seem to be surprised by it. But I'll go back and say one more time. President Biden, when he was even running before he got elected, said many, many times, he told us, I'm going to phase out fossil fuel. And to his credit, he's done that. But all of us are sitting here, not only my company, but my customers are sitting here as collateral damage to that. And, you know, you can't run farm equipment on electric vehicles. They don't have any way of doing that. Those are large vehicles, very big, specific vehicles that require fuel uh, to harvest, fuel to plant right now, fuel to harvest later. Uh, We don't have electric trucks that can transport all the goods to marketplace. We don't have any of that. So, you know, you have said over and over, and I think you're right, he, he basically said, Nope, nope, I'm going to phase out fossil fuels. This doesn't seem like a phase-out, though. This seems like, you know, a murder-suicide. I mean, because in killing the fossil fuel business, in doing what he thinks is right for the environmentalist left that that adores him and pushes him this way, suicidal, it's causing huge inflation problems, huge uh, supply chain problems. Uh, Think about right now. There are shortages, not just shortages, they don't have baby formula in certain states and they're running out. People are selling baby formula uh, for $4,000 on the black market right now. Just the simple things in life like baby formula now can't get to the marketplace. And now the costs are going through the roof based on the fuel uh, being so high and even being in less supply and more demand. I mean, that just seems like a horrible, horrible ass policy. And, uh, and I, I just don't get, at some point, you just got to say, okay, maybe we need to phase this in a little slower. Maybe we were a little too drastic. 
but they just seem to be full steam ahead. You've got the GDP going down. It looks like a, a recession, global even recession is coming. And they're not doing anything except putting forth this left agenda, which is going to make green energy king. But green energy can't, can't harvest the crops. Green energy can't get uh, that truck to the marketplace with the goods that everybody takes for granted, but now doesn't take for granted. We've gone from toilet paper shortages and paper towel shortages during the pandemic, uh, which were based on people's glut. I mean, they just started buying it up like they do when it's when it's snowing, you know, rain or snow uh, really brings out people that go for bread, milk and toilet paper. And that's what you had here. But this is actual can't get the product to market, can't get the product made and can't use the trucks that are need that need to be used or the ships that need to be used filled up enough to where they can deliver it wherever it is. And now we've got, we're in competition. This is a national security issue, buddy. And we are, we are saying, and of course, because we're a free market society, the old companies with the crude are saying, I can make a boatload more money sending it to Europe uh, than keeping it here. And especially with the policies that our president and his administration have, there's really no point in doing so. I think that was to your point. Um, this is like just, I mean, you know, I, I used to think that maybe Joe Biden was trying to fundamentally change the United States of America. Now I think he's just trying to kill us. I, I, I just think this is a way to remove the strong underpinnings of this free society, of this democracy, make the government be in control and put the people at their at the will of the government, which scares me so much, Hermie. I mean, I just can't. Look, there's no I mean, baby, baby formula, for God's sakes. There's no way to put a positive spin on this. Uh, we're all suffering from Biden's, it's not really Biden, let's just be honest, he has no control over his office or the party. It's the extreme left that are calling the shots from the beginning, AOC and that bunch. But this bold green dreams that they've been shoving down our throat, uh, and nobody's, you know, nobody's without uh, hurt in this whole thing. How many times have we seen Joe Biden while he was campaigning to run for president, he would always mock President Trump anytime Trump talked about the stock market stock market, or 401ks or anything like that. He always made a big joke out of it. Well, you know, 401ks and stock market, that's not what makes America run and this and that and the other. So you think people that have 401ks are laughing about it now? I mean... It's been a 30% decrease across the board in most cases in people's 401ks, stock market, volatile the way it is, all these losses. And forget about that because most people, when they talk about stock market and 401k, they think that's just the rich people. How about the middle class, the middle to lower class? Every time you go to the grocery store on something, you would spend $50, now you're spending $75. Now when you go fill your car up with gas, it was $25, now it's $55. So... Who does that hurt the most? So everybody is catching it here, and I don't know how, when. They're just so hard-headed. They're too proud to say we had no idea the fundamental effects that these policies were going to have, and we're in trouble. But I think they're too proud to say that, and we're going to suffer for it. Well, and, and think about it this way, too. What I've seen is a lot is that when something, you know, when inflation went up, oh, blame Putin. Or uh, when the gas prices went up, oh, blame Ukraine war. Uh, everything is not their fault. Nothing is their fault. They're not accountable at all. And then what I saw just recently, which really kind of bothered me, was they were saying, 
I think Biden said it himself. He said, uh, the MAGA movement, the Make America Great Again movement is one of the most extreme, extremist movements we have in the United States today. And so if you break that down a little bit, what he's saying is that if anybody sits there and says or believes that we should put America first, put our citizens first, put our country first, put our businesses first, put our freedom first over the interests, foreign or domestic, that, that do not put us first, uh, that somehow that is an extreme movement. Well, let's, let's see what that extremist movement is, President Biden. That extremist movement had the lowest gas prices ever, had the lowest unemployment ever, had the highest uh, raising per capita income per family in all uh, parts of society. Uh, no matter what color you were or where you came from, you saw a benefit from a booming economy. What an extreme agenda that is. And now it should be just submit yourself to the government, do what we say, and suffer. And in the meantime, just as you said again, Hermie, you, you nailed it on the head, the people that suffer the most are the people they say they care about the most, which are like, you know, your lower middle class, your lower, your low class, people in poverty. They're paying the same prices as those in the upper class and in the higher parts of society. What amazes me, too, as I think about this, is that for so long the Democrat Party was all about free speech and they would say the Republican Party's for the rich fat cats and big corporations and big, you know, and government uh, controls and, and weren't for the Constitution. Well, look at what they are. You know, right now the Republican Party is for the little guy and we're for the working class. And the Democrats now are so elitist. These same elitists that sit there and say, you can't fill up your car with unleaded fuel, it's bad for the environment are the ones getting on private jets and jetting across to Europe to go to vacation. The ones that say oh, you should submit to the government and, and we should lessen free speech are the ones that back in the 60s and 70s said that was the most important amendment to the Constitution. Uh, we have seen a wholesale change of the Democrat Party into being for the big fat cat companies, for quelling dissension, uh, for not believing in free speech unless that free speech conforms with what they believe, and then uh, turning on people and saying, for being different or dare to think differently, that you're a racist, you're a xenophobe, you're this, you're that, you're not woke. I mean, I really believe they're not trying to change this country. I think they're just trying to kill us all. And, and this is a dangerous path. You want to talk about extreme measures. I think their agenda is extreme for what it does to all of America. And I hope, I hope we all wake up to this. We've got to do something quick. Uh, I don't know what it is, but I wish that these people would care about Americans as much as they seem to care about those at the southern border that cross indiscriminately and without any repercussions. I would hope that they care about freedom of the press and independent of thought and the right of free speech rather than making sure that everybody conforms to the way they think or do. I would think that they would want parents to be involved in their kids' education and collaborate with the schools rather than shut the doors and shut out the parents and then indoctrinate these children to think like they want them to think. To me, that is, that is a dangerous path for the United States to be going down. And I believe the people of America have woken up. And I think it, it, we've said it before with the parents, but also this woke crap. You know, this, you know, I don't care. Don't, I'm not woke. You know, you can unwoke me. You can cancel culture me all you want. I don't care. Cancel me. Wow. What am I going to do? Go back to my farm? Wow. Yeah. Dag nabbit. I got to sit on my farm and, and, and hang out with my family and my pets. You know, I mean, this just isn't the America you and I were raised in. 
and I think it's dangerous, and we're seeing the effects just economically right now, and I don't see how it's going to get better. Hermie, what do you think? We've, <clears throat> there's got to be more emphasis at the federal level and certainly at the state level here in the Commonwealth of Virginia. There's got to be more attention paid to how the policies and the laws that are written and implemented in the Commonwealth of Virginia, especially since this is where we live, there's got to be more attention placed on how are these policies and laws going to affect normal, everyday, working people here in Virginia. And I don't think anybody, how could anybody in their right mind, if you sat down and looked at some of the decisions that have been made and continue to be made, that's the, that's the only thing that's worse than being incompetent. It's being stupid on top of that. I mean, if you see you're going down the wrong path, you know, it's not about you. It's about the people of Virginia. It's about the people of the United States. If you're going down the wrong path, you got to be humble enough or not too proud to say, <clears throat> we're going down the wrong road. We've got to course correct and go back this other way because people are getting crushed. And that's what's going on here. I mean, we talk about the, the challenges. You live in a similar rural type area on a different part of the state. But, I mean, the last couple of days has really put it even more in perspective for me. As I get phone calls from people in the forestry business, logging business, farmers, third and fourth generation farmers that are having conversations with me about, we might have to shut down. Because not only can we get fuel, how much is it? Fertilizer, all these other mm -hmm. costs that are going up tenfold. And you can't even plan on whether or not you can get it. And labor issues and other things. And it's just like, when are people going to realize that these policies are really affecting businesses? I mean, you can be whatever side of aisle you want to be from. But if you eat food, you should love a farmer and protect at all costs the business of farming uh i just don't get it but it seems like you know every time biden talks on tv or anytime i hear legislators in virginia even they just talk like it's like it's not a big deal like it's just if you think that way you're you know you're republican you think that way <clears throat> that's in your that's in your mind that's just you know and i'm like yeah yeah, like, we're, no we're, like we're fantasizing, like we're not yeah. seeing the force for the trees or, or what well, we're doing. Fa is we're I'm fantasizing about this. I've got a $10 million truck stop facility in Suffolk, Virginia, truck stop that I do not have diesel fuel at. So, wow. And every truck that's pulling in there probably is needing not, they're not coming in to top off either. And, and so if you're having that kind of problem, then the other truck stops have to be probably similarly situated, right? And then... Okay, I've also got restaurants. So that one of those trucks may have been bringing my food to Fosho, which is a truck stop restaurant. So now that truck can't get there. So then mm. what? So what? So then if I don't have food to prepare at the restaurants, then I've got people there that I'm paying to not work because there's nothing there. I mean, it's just a whole trickle-down trickle effect that starts at the top, and it's really, really dangerous. You know, and it gets... It gets back to what we were trying to consider and, 
and even trying to pass during the special session here in the General Assembly. You know, Governor Yunkin steps out and says, hey, we're, we're experiencing some problems. The government has some surplus here at the state level. Let's pull back and repeal the grocery tax. I don't think that people should be paying money for the essentials. Um, and, they, and then he also says, hey, let's repeal the gas tax for at least a small period of time so that we, we can see some savings realized and some offset based on this high inflation and these high prices that are going up. Guess who are the people that were for it? Hmm, the Republicans that believe that that's your money, it should stay that way. Guess who was absolutely against it? Hmm, the Democrats. Nope, can't take money away from our roads up in Northern Virginia, Hampton Roads. Nope, nope, we need that tax money for our special projects. Never thinking about the kitchen table or the pocketbook of of Mr. and Mrs. Smith and their children. Never, ever thinking how their policies, these grandiose generalities that they throw out there are going to have this effect on the everyday lives of people. And I thought when I got into government that that's what we were supposed to be doing. We were supposed to be thinking about the everyday lives of people and how do we make it better, not make it worse. That as a government of the people and for the people, that we're actually going to serve the people. This government at the federal level and a lot of people who are in government believe that it is the people that serve the government and not the other way around. And that's a dangerous course for us to be taking. And look, even Youngkin's tax credits or tax breaks on gas and on, on food, on groceries, was not a, it was a number that came out of our budget. It was not going to create huge savings for people based on this inflation rate that seems to be going out of control. But it was going to be significant enough that it would have made a difference in their lives would have not put them in this situation where they were in a worse off uh, position because of government policy. And here's where we are. No, no, you got to suffer. And meanwhile, by the way, I'm going to tell you, most of these Democrats, like we were talking about them being the elitists. I mean, they're sitting in big, fancy homes behind gated communities. This stuff doesn't affect them. When a, when a city burns because of riots, they're behind a gated community. They don't care. They've got theirs. But they don't care about others who want to live the American dream to get to where they are. And what they want to do is dictate how you should live your life or run your life or what you pay for your life rather than giving me the right that God created and gave me to make decisions for my family and to exercise that free will for the good of my family and myself. Unbelievable. These liberals thrive on power. They want people to be dependent on them and dependent on the government to survive. So when they see hardships being suffered by small businesses and by middle class, lower class families, all that, that's perfect for them because they get to come along and say, oh, don't worry, we're going to give you free this, free that, take care of this, take care of that, with their only end game being you know, the people that they bail out or, or claim they're bailing out, then they'll vote for them again <laughs> when the time comes. But our look, the rubber band has got to snap at some point. There's no way that small businesses can operate and average middle-class families, there's no way they can survive and maintain in today's environment, especially when you look at where it's headed. You know, I, I hear... You know, I know it's saying it's nice if you're a politician to stand up on the, you know, on the stage and say, I got everybody $15 an hour. Yay. Mm -hmm. Okay. But the time you add inflation to it, 
that person is still further behind than they were two years ago before minimum wage went up. Are you going to mention right. that and why? And of course not. They don't. So uh, we're, we're, we're on the wrong path, uh, Senator, and we're headed down the wrong road in a hurry. And I just don't know how many bouts with reality some of our leaders in Washington and in Richmond, how much are people going to have to suffer before they finally realize it? Well, and do they even feel that suffering? Do they even understand or comprehend or compassionate to that suffering? Do they suffer themselves? You know, I like to, I like to say to a lot of people who would care to listen when we fight for broadband, I don't have broadband at my house. I have crappy uh, satellite. And that doesn't even work because the trees, once the leaves go on the tree, it goes out. Um, but that's a real need for a lot more people. Now, I'm going to sit there in the same way that others are waiting, but that's a necessity for people. But a lot of these people are up in their ivory towers, glass houses, whatever that they may be, and they are living the luxe life, eating the caviar, um, living the dream, and they, and they lose perspective on the rest of Virginia or the rest of America. They, they have no perspective whatsoever. I had some, some of my Democrat friends who came down in this area not too long ago, uh, and when they were driving in there, it was like, oh, my goodness, there's so many farms and so much land and hills and stuff. And I don't even think they comprehend, as you were saying, what it takes to grow that one tomato or to make that one pound of beef. They think that Wegmans does it. They yeah, think they think, they think they're grown in the back the of the grocery store. Yeah, that's right. 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 And, 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 and they really kind of lose that comprehension in the same way. You know, I'm reminded down here in Southside, you were affected the same way in your area, in your region, because it's Southside Virginia and Southwest Virginia. When the North American Free Trade Agreement came around, the government was telling us, because we're the industrial center of Virginia, really the East Coast, oh, this will make cheaper sneakers and more competitive. It'll be great. You won't lose your jobs. It'll be great because you'll be paying less at the, uh, at the store for whatever goods. Well, that giant sucking sound that Ross Perot said was all those jobs that went overseas. We lost them forever. So when we listened to the government, when it, they told us it would be great for us, uh, it was just the opposite. When they said tobacco was bad, was bad, you know, stop growing it, it'll be great for you. We'll even pay you not to grow it. It was bad for us. Every time the government tells us down here in Southwest Virginia or Southside Virginia that whatever their program is or direction they're heading, it'll be good for you. I think universally people down here go, no, I don't believe you. And then so even when we fight back for our own industries to come back to, to bring jobs back, we've had a depletion of population because of those jobs going away overseas. We just kind of want to do it on our own. But at the same time, listen, leave us alone and we'll do it uh, and we'll do it right. But they seem to want to then impose more of these government decisions that are going to hurt regions like Southside and Southwest Virginia and, and quite frankly, the whole United States, not just the Commonwealth of Virginia. And they don't care, man. And they'll never, ever admit that, whoops, that was a mistake. I'm sorry. Let's see what we can do to fix it. Once they start down a path, government never says, oh, I was wrong. Let's stop this before it gets worse. Nope. We are headed over the cliff into the oblivion, and they don't care. They're hitting the gas. They're not hitting the brake. Man, I'm sick to my stomach. All right. So that was a leaning right moment that really pissed me off. <laughs> that was just talking, man. Remember, we said... We do this on the phone, uh, ladies and gentlemen who are listening. So we have these conversations because we do believe we can solve a lot of the world's problems, uh, at least on our phone calls. So you just heard a piece of that.
Are you feeling stuck making minimum payments on your credit card debt? SaveWithConrad.com can help, and you don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket to do this. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. Oh, and did I mention no house payments for two months? Get rid of your credit card debt and lower your monthly payments right now at SaveWithConrad.com. Hi, folks. This is Hermie Sadler. Thanks for listening to our all-new podcast, Leaning Right and Turning Left with Sadler and the Senator. I hope you are enjoying the show as much as Senator Stanley and I enjoy bringing it to you. Whether you're a family traveling together or a truck driver hauling freight up and down the highway, I hope you will take the time to visit one of our Sadler Travel Plaza locations in Virginia and North Carolina. Sadler Travel Plaza locations are licensed dealer locations for pilot travel centers. And we also carry Shell Motiva Petroleum products for our four-wheel friends. We pride ourselves on providing one-stop shopping for service, food, and entertainment. Our food options include Five Guys Burgers and Fries, Quiznos, Dairy Queen, Hermie Sadler's Faux Show Bar and Grill, Victory Lane Restaurant, Hunt Brothers Pizza, Dunkin' Donuts, and much, much more. Our locations include Sadler Travel Plaza in South Hill, located off I-85 at Exit 12. The Sadler Travel Plaza of Emporia, which is conveniently located on exit 11B off I-95. And Sadler Travel Plaza on Highway 58 in Suffolk. We also have our North Carolina location, Sadler Travel Plaza in Dunn, North Carolina. That's exit 75 off I-95. We appreciate all of our customers. And Bill and I appreciate you listening to Leaning Right and Turning Left with Sadler and the Senator, powered by Pacematic. We'll get back to another leaning right moment later, but we want to rotate over. So I get to ask you a turning left question about racing. Are you ready? Sure. No, wait a minute. No, wait a minute. You're supposed to ask me the government questions. I'm supposed to ask you the racing. Yeah, but you asked me about gas prices first. So I get to ask a racing question to you now. Oh, okay. All right. right. And then we'll reset from there. Fine. Go ahead. Your thoughts on the bump and run at Darlington on Sunday. Oh, Oh yeah. So I'm starting to get into a little bit. I don't know about you. Cause you, you're in the industry. Uh, you were in it more. You've been in the cars. I'm starting to like these next gen cars a lot better. Um, I think they're, uh, more fun to watch. The other thing is, is that, you know, it used to be, you'd rub the, the bumper a little bit, a little left and right, get them loose and then pass. Uh, now it seems like they just got to run into the, okay. Back you politician other. answer the question. Uh, uh, my, my, my 10-year-old son, Chandler, loves Joey Logano. Joey Logano was great to him in a Martinsville race because it was his favorite racer, and he was so Answer kind the him. question. Joey Logano could light my hair on fire, and I'd still not be mad at him. So, no, I am not mad about the past. That's racing. It looks like he had to – I don't think he had to do it. Uh, I, didn't like his, I didn't like his excuse afterwards that, you know, he wasn't going to be bullied on the track, so he was going to show him. Uh, I didn't see that at all in the race, but uh, just sit there and go, yeah, man, I did it. Just kind of like Earnhardt, you say. I didn't mean to wreck him, just wanted to, you know. So if you're if if you're if you're Rick Hendrick or Jeff Gordon, the owner of the 24, you're, you're just okay with it. You think it's okay. Well, if I'm Rick Hendrick, uh, then I've been around racing long enough that, to know that that's what happens sometimes. And, yeah, you're not happy with it, but um, I, I didn't like that he wrecked up his race car. Um I, I didn't like that his race car got all tore up. But, man, I didn't mind the bump at all. I thought it was great. I would have liked a little more side-by-side side as they were coming in. You know, maybe he could have made that pass. It he makes you wonder if the momentum. something was going on with the 24 because that last, like, lap and a half, Logano really closed the, closed the gap. But I give Logano credit. 
he's never been bashful about saying he's in it for himself and he'll do whatever, whenever, however. He's not out there trying to make friends, and he's been that way really since he went over to Roger Penske, and he has not apologized for anything like that. He has very few friends, if any, in the garage, but guess what? He got a big trophy on Sunday at Darlington. Yeah, he did, and uh, and a win is a win. And, you know, maybe the 24's got some bad feelings. He called him a moron, I think, afterwards. You know, why didn't he go over there take his helmet off? Because we learned you got to take your helmet off in prior podcasts before you get in a fight. Um, and go talk to him. Why didn't he do that? Why did he just sit there on TV and just say, you were a moron, man. You didn't have to do that to me. I mean, that just seemed a little weak, not racing. Was he afraid? Um, you know, who knows? It's racing. It happens. I was, I was happy with it. It was a good race. Uh, a lot of side-by-side racing, a lot of good events. And, you know, Darlington never disappoints. It didn't again. I was ready for it to disappoint. I, I, I think um, it, it lived up to its expectations. The, the question I'd ask you, since I get to ask questions now that I answer that, what do you think about Kyle Busch's kind of temper tantrum at the end where he gets up in a wreck and he just parks his car right in the middle of, of the pits or, you know, the row and then just kind of walks out? And leaves his car there to be towed off. What do you think of that? I don't. I don't think it stopped. I think he parked it purposely. He, he parked it there. He it. said he didn't make the corner, but he parked it there. You know, he got fined last year, I think, at Darlington when he tried to drive in with a wrecked car, and I think he ran over an orange cone going into the garage area. And NASCAR fined him like fifteen grand for unsafe for running over entry a cone? into the garage. Unsafe. It's people in the garage. I mean, people are. I mean, it's a, yeah. it's a public place, and he came in there pissed off running you know, running at a high rate of speed and cut across where some cones were. And that's all well and good until you run over top of somebody. Then that's a whole nother set of problems. But, you know, I've had the the privilege of being around Kyle some in some public settings and away from the track. And when he's not really putting on the Kyle Busch show, he's really a nice guy, very smart, very methodical. He thinks everything, he doesn't do anything without, thinking about it. I mean, he's really got a plan. But sometimes when he has issues at the track, when the when the uh, cameras turn on and the microphone turns on, uh, he really doesn't always say or do the, the smartest things. And I typically, that's even more concerning to me right now if you're a Kyle Busch fan, because as we sit here today, he does not have a sponsor for next year that Joe Gibbs has announced anyway. So you would think that even though he wants to uphold his image, he would also be weary of the fact that people are watching and there could be a CEO of a company somewhere that might eventually consider coming on and being a sponsor of Joe Gibbs or Kyle Busch that may not like his attitude or just parking the car and walking away like a little baby. So uh, I, I didn't think that, you know, I didn't like what he did. It, it, it's him. It's part of him. The people that love him think it's great. The people that don't like him think it's childish. As a person, I like him. As a driver, he's one of the most talented drivers of our generation. But when he acts like that, I think he has a purpose behind it. But I'm not sure in his current situation that that's what he needs to help settle his situation for next year at Joe Gibbs Racing. Well, I tell you, for M&Ms at least, I mean, they, they showed the car for a good long while sitting there. Uh, so if you want product placement and, uh, and your stuff on TV, uh, he gave him that. Look, I think he's always been the villain. I think he plays the role well. I mean, 
It used to be Kurt Busch was that way, but he kind of mellowed out. I don't, I don't know, uh, something there. But, but Kyle just lets you know how he feels. Now, you know, you were talking about how he acts in front of the TV uh, cameras. I mean, you know, he started some controversy with uh, the lack of the sponsor and whether he might not be back at JGR and uh, with Joe Gibbs Racing. And, and so – and sometimes I've seen him go, yep. You know, they ask him a question, and nope. And he does that. I'm just here so I don't get when fined. You, right. And so when you were and when you were doing the uh, the pit reporting, when you were a Fox television analyst for Fox Sports, do you have any of those kind of moments with uh, Kyle Busch that you remember? Yeah, he was. I always dreaded interviewing him when he finished second, especially in a truck race. <laughs> Why? Because I knew it was going to be a shitty interview. I mean, in what way? It was going to be a bunch of blame somebody else sourpuss kind of and i've always and you've said this a couple times i always tried to report what was going on whether it be during the race or in a post-race interview whatever but i always wanted i always wanted to be entertaining as well and be lighthearted and try to keep the viewer and kyle when he didn't win especially a truck race he thought he was supposed to win and he won most of them but he thought he was going to win every single truck race and so it was kind of a like a laughing joke where he, uh, you know, okay, I'll go get him, you know, because let's just say if another pit reporter had the victory lane interview, so I would go get two through five with Kyle finished second. You know, first thing my producer would say is go get Kyle Bush. I'm like, okay, this is going to be riveting television because it was just a bunch of one or two word answers. That's just the way he was. I did have one case. I think it was Kansas actually where he was leading in a truck race, and I think he broke towards the end, maybe four or five laps to go. And so they sent me to – he drove to the garage. They sent me to the garage to get him, and he started walking. And so not only do I have a pack on and a camera and a crew, I got four or five people with me as as a pit road reporter. He just starts walking to his bus, and he knows I'm trying to interview him. So finally, I just stopped and I said, Kyle, I'm not chasing you to your bus. And if you don't stop, I'm never going to interview you again. And he finally, you know, stopped and did all that. But I, it was not, I shouldn't have to chase him from the garage all the way to his motorhome, you know, yeah. to, to get Well, a, and that's part interview. of the obligation of, the, of being a driver, too, is kind of giving everybody an interview. And, and that's always never been a problem. Um, Everybody's always talked to the press in NASCAR. I, I don't know. Was that always a part of that? I mean, were you contractually required if if you get out of a race? Well, if you're NASCAR top five, they hold, they hold people on pit road. Now, I, I assume that if you blew an engine and were out early, you didn't have a a NASCAR obligation, but you would have, you would think, a moral obligation to your sponsors. Because not only was he driving and had a sponsor on that truck, he's got a whole team, you know, the Truck Series team. And right. you would think he would – understand the importance of giving an interview regardless of how good the interview is going to be or how bad it's going to be showing his younger drivers that he's mentoring at Kyle Busch Motorsports the importance of letting your sponsors hear from you in good times and bad times do you ever have one of those uh interviews with Kyle Busch that was kind of funny or yeah you know, plenty. Got to laugh? as long as he wins it's great you know he's hmm. But I tell you, I've had some fun with Kyle at social events over the years, and he's he really is smart. He's a great guy, has a good heart, 
Um, he's he's not what you see like at that interview after they finally got him at the care center. You know, they showed him after he parked his car and then he went and changed clothes. They made him get in the golf cart and he looked like somebody had stolen his dog from him, you know. Right. And he goes and they do an interview with him. It was not a good interview. It was a bunch of, you know, whatever. <laughs> Wasn't good TV, but people wanted to hear from him and they did. Well, he's usually good for a quote. I mean, he's never boring. Uh, even the yep and the nope part for a week, I did that. You know, I'd get asked questions here at the office, and I go, "Yep, nope," and um, you know, that's the stuff you remember. And I think you need to have a villain and somebody like that with personality. My problem uh, with NASCAR, if it's anything right now, is kind of all the young kids run together. I mean, uh, and you know, uh, uh, Ross Chastain looks no different than a Daniel Hemrick to me, and you know. NASCAR, what it was great for and what it always was great for was the characters that were out there from the Harry Gans to the Dale Earnhardt's um, to the Brett Bodines to, you know, I could go on and on with how many characters, Rusty Wallace. I mean, I mean, everybody, you know, and the, and the Saddlers, Elliot Sadler, Hermie Sadler, everything. Um, it, that's that's what NASCAR really was a part of. You got the personality under the helmet and it seems like you're less and less seeing that. I mean, there's if there's personalities left, uh, they're the ones that are older and have been around for a while, or Ty Gibbs. So it's just because he throws a good punch, a little one-two combination. So, you know, I find uh, I find him necessary for the sport, if that's proper way to say it. I think you got to have a guy like him out there. You got to have I don't know, bad guy, um, but at the same time, a, a guy that looks like he's not towing the company line. You know, too often you hear all these NASCAR drivers go, well, the, uh, you know, the Comico Chevrolet uh, sponsored by, you know, uh, Twinkies just didn't have it today. And we put enough Sunoco fuel in there, but uh, one of our Hoosier tires went bad. I mean, it sounds like a walking billboard. Sounds like something they have to say, of course, for sponsors. But I think uh, I think even your brother said on a podcast, you know, it was good to get away from racing because then you could speak your mind. And sometimes those drivers have to have to repeat the body politic of NASCAR corporate. Um, Kyle Busch doesn't seem to be one of those. And I think, you know, some may find that annoying. I find it refreshing and I, I can't wait for the interview. Are you ready to lean right again? I'm ready to continue leaning right. Yes. <laughs> uh, we talked briefly on, the intro to last week's episode that we had Phil Parsons and Stephen Parsons, by the way, which was a great show. We enjoyed having them on. But one of the things we talked about was the leak coming out of the Supreme Court on the potential Roe versus Wade decision and some of the issues that that's caused for justices and all the politics involved with all that. My question to you is, because I need to be educated myself too. As I've watched the news and tried to read about certain things related to Roe versus Wade and how this decision could impact policy and laws and, and people's lives, for that matter, across the country, I'm very confused on really what Roe versus Wade actually means, what it does, and if this is overturned, what that actually means to people, say, here in Virginia. So could you take just a few moments and try to help me and others that are listening to this podcast better understand if this in fact happens, if Roe versus Wade is overturned, really in layman's terms, what does that mean? 
So Roe versus Wade is a decision by the Supreme Court in the early 70s that basically said that a woman had a right, inherent right, because it's not spelled out in the Constitution, under the Due Process Clause and the Rights of Privacy, uh, which is also inherent in the Constitution, to an abortion to terminate the life of their child prior to birth. The government said, the federal court did say, uh, that it could, that it was a woman's right to choose absolutely to terminate in the first trimester. And that is, of course, I'm not a math guy, but nine months uh, for gestation and pregnancy, that's the first three months the pregnancy could be terminated without any regulation or prohibition by any of the states. The case arose out of um, criminalization of abortion, that those who provided it or those who obtained one um, in Roe versus Wade, uh, it was a criminal act in, in accordance with a state law. And the federal government said, no, nope, states can't do that. It's a federal right inherent in the Constitution. In the second trimester, the Supreme Court said states could regulate it but not prohibit it. So that would be from month, you know, 30, uh, 91 days to the, to the six-month period, there could be some regulation uh, and some, you know, and then in the last trimester, it could be banned entirely. Um, we see a lot of people talking about um, abortion upon demand, upon demand at the time of birth. Uh, some states do allow that to happen, like New York, um, which is, again, the state flexing its muscle. But the federal government said Roe versus Wade was enshrined in the Constitution, although never mentioned. So this new um, court case basically says that it's not a federal right. It doesn't come from the Constitution or any of the inherent rights or implied rights of the Constitution. It actually, the decision of whether to make abortion legal or illegal rests entirely with the states under our plan of federalism and under our United States, which is a republic. Remember, we're states united together. We cede some authority to the uh, federal government, but to the rest is reserved to the states because at that level, the people elect their representatives in the House and Senate like they do in Virginia, and those people make those determinations. So if the Alito decision stands, then what it says is this is a state issue. This is not a federal issue. It will not make, let's say, Alito's decision overturning Roe versus Wade and Clark versus Griswold. Um, Casey, I'm sorry, Casey. Um, Clark Griswold is with the Chevy Chase movies. Um, so what it would do in that, in that sense is it would return it to the states. Now, they said, you know, there's about 20 states that probably would either severely limit and restrict when you could have an abortion or eliminate it altogether from being legal in their state. But there would be still a majority of states that would make it legal. So it does not render abortion illegal by its reversal if the Supreme Court chooses to reverse Roe versus Wade. It will then go to the states. The question is, what will states do? What will states not do? That's why, look, if you live in a state that bans abortion, like Alabama, move to California. Um, you know, it will allow those people of like-mindedness to live in their state, to live in their state, elect their representatives, and allow them to make the decisions that reflect their values. That's what will happen. It will not create these backroom abortion clinics with, with some of the god-awful things that they've said. And quite frankly, I think it's the way that every part of government, if there's not enumerated power granted to the federal government, then the power is reserved to the state and to the people. That's what we're based on. And I think that's what the court's grappling with right now. So in a nutshell, if Roe v. Wade's overturned, not going to make abortion illegal blanket in the United States. 
There may be, uh, it may empower those states to determine for themselves whether they say, you know, we've had heartbeat, fetal heartbeat bills, uh, fetal pain bills. Those are saying when a, when a fetus, when a, an unborn child is able to feel pain, and it's usually 12 to 16 weeks, then you can't have an abortion. When there's a heartbeat detected, uh, then at that point, states have been trying to, uh, to make illegal an abortion, to, to outlaw the abortion after that. Uh, some states, like I said, New York and California, uh, abortion at birth is still going to be legal. So I think that's what you'll see is a tableau of different uh, rules and regulations all over the map kind of stuff. Some may ban, some may make it uh, uh, totally legal. My, my position has always been I'm pro-life. I, I really just don't think this is uh, reproductive health care. Um, you know, reproductive health care is having a the pill or a condom or something. I don't think it's after you've made that decision, you didn't use protection and now you are pregnant and you got somebody pregnant, both the mother and the father should take responsibility for those actions. And it's, you know, look, it's on the father too. There's a lot of fathers out there that are not taking care of their children, that abandon their children and abandon their financial responsibility. That is as bad to, in my mind as the abortion of an unborn child. So uh, I think there should be cross responsibility. Um, you know, if you're going to ban abortion, you better go after all of these fathers and make sure that they're financially responsible. And good God, I wish, you know, as, as glorious as I know you for you, buddy, that uh, being a parent has been has been the same for me. And uh, I just can't see why people just as a human being wouldn't love their own flesh and blood and do everything they could for them. That's, you mind that if, really I, gets me. if I ask you two questions to be devil's advocate for a second? Sure. Go ahead. What do you say to the people that say, uh, a the government shouldn't be telling a female what she can and can't do with her body. That, that's a normal thing that you know on the other side of the coin that people that people say. And I'll give you an example. I won't call names, but I had a um, a friend of mine whose daughter, while still in high school, uh, had a one night relationship with a incoming student that just transferred to the school, got pregnant, and the boy left and did all that. And that's the first time really I'm there's hundreds and hundreds of cases, but that I became aware of that because this girl was a close friend of my daughter's. And it just makes you think How would you handle those type situations? So I, my, my, my question to you is simply for every person that's going to say pro-life, which is what I am, the other side of the equation is going to be, Hermie, if you're so against the government overreaching, how do you let government overreach into you know, the life choice or decision of a, of a, of a female? What, yeah. what is your position? How do you answer that question? That's a good question, and I think that's the moral dilemma that we all face. But, you know, I've heard just what you said, that, that government can't tell a woman what to do with her body. I agree with that. I agree with that statement. But a baby is not her body. A baby is the, the by conception, the byproduct of two bodies coming together and creating human life. So that's not her body. It's an independent body. 
It's an unborn child. And I don't think a uh, government is trying to tell her what to do with her body. Um, I think, but government should, should not be, you know, all the time, um, staying away from life because look, Governments only survive if its population reproduces. It needs new taxpayers. So it's kind of contrary um, to what we're thinking when a government says, oh, yeah, go ahead and abort your baby. Um, we're going we're gonna to make that a legal thing or we're going to make it a prevalent thing or, or you know, at will. Um, I think the balance, too, though, is, you know, there are going to be those times. You know, you mentioned um, the friend of, of your daughter's. Um, where those moments happen and you have to make decisions and they are the right decisions. But I think life is always the right decision. You know, I, Ronald Reagan said one time, he said, he said, I find it ironic that the only people that are advocating for abortion and for killing an unborn child are the ones that are already born. Uh, those that do this already had life. They, you know, they have life that somebody made that decision that said you will be brought onto this good earth made by your creator and have a chance to live that dream and to do what God intends you to do. You know, um, it's a personal thing, but I would hope that we always choose life. And I think a lot of times we regret when we make decisions because you can't take that one back. You know, I've said it before. My dad said, you can't unring a bell. Well, that's a weighty decision, but you can't undo that. My God. If you and, look into uh, your crystal ball. For that reason, that's what I think. If you look into your crystal ball, where where would you predict in the next five years or so, where do you think the issue will be in Virginia? Well, I think as long as we have a split um, legislature, you're always going to find uh, that the status quo will be maintained. I think even... Democrats found it distasteful when one of their Democrat delegates uh, offered that bill that said that you could abort a baby after it was born healthy. Um, I think we all kind of went, were aghast by, by how far the abortion industry would go on something like that. I think it will be a debate that will rage on because we're so close to the Capitol for years and years. And we are not a blue state or a red state. We're quintessentially purple. Um, ultimately, I hope we choose life. Uh, I think, you know, abortion um, bills that uh, like the fetal pain bill and the fetal heartbeat bill are rational and reasonable. Um, and, you know, if a bill came across my desk to vote yes or no for life, I'm going to vote for life every every time. Uh, it's going to be ongoing. What I th what I think, though, I'm seeing is and I saw in polls is that de the Democrats hair is on fire and they're yelling and screaming about this whole thing. And quite frankly, the electorate has abortion way down on their priority list. In fact, the economy and inflation, gas prices, the things we talked about in the first half hour of this show matter way more to people uh, than, than a lot of this issue at the same time. So I don't think it, you know, I thought they were putting it that, that draft opinion out there to affect elections, but every poll I'm seeing, it galvanizes Republicans, but it's not moving, you know, your moderates into one corner or another. It's not really changing the electorate, which says these are more important issues. But here we go again with the Democrats saying, oh, we've created this whole mess. Well, let's let's get this dog whistle out and let's get you distracted so you don't see the mess I made uh, over here. It's like one, one of my kids says, you know, I see them and they've made a total mess. And, and I go, Chandler, you made this mess. And he's like, yeah, well, you should see the mess over here that Aubrey made. And, um, and try to distract you from what is really 
uh, truly an issue before the party of the people. So, you know, I, I think this is debate has been going on for a long time in America. It will continue to go on. But, you know, I choose life. Do you have a racing question yeah. or do you mean to fire another leaning right question? No, 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 I do. I do. See, and it's right off the cuff. So as we were talking earlier uh, about NASCAR and I'm liking NASCAR more and I'm seeing ratings are going up. I noticed, though, that I think it was this past weekend. Yeah, it was this past weekend. F1 had their Miami Grand Prix, which was like a big deal. And comparatively speaking, F1 worldwide is getting hundreds of millions of viewers every race. NASCAR is averaging like two to five to six when they get six million. They're 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 shocked. So my question is, how is F1 become so popular? And why isn't NASCAR as popular? And what is NASCAR not doing right that they need to do right? Or conversely, what is F1 doing so right that we could learn from and make NASCAR and short track racing more popular? Because dynamic, we started the damn sport. We should be on top of it everywhere. I'm going to pull up on my phone. First of all, I'm going to be in full disclosure. I'm going to say I know and care nothing about F1. <laughs> the stumper. Okay. But Adam Stern, who does, puts out ratings. All right. U.S. Motorsports viewership for Sunday. As you mentioned, the cup race at Darlington and the Formula, Formula One race at Miami ran head-to-head. On TV. In fact, the Formula One race was on ABC, which was network television. And the Cup Series race was at FS1, which was not on network television. The Darlington race got a 1.45 rating for an average of 2.614 million viewers. Formula One... ABC got a 1.08 rating, 2.066 million viewers. So the snapshot of what happened Sunday is 600 more thousand people watched the NASCAR race on cable television than watched the Formula One race on network television. Well, forget I asked the question then. It's all those damn Europeans watching that damn sport. So, And I just saw this Um, because Jamie Little who I worked with at Fox for years. She had an interesting tweet, so she took these, this information and retweeted it this morning and said, these are the ratings from Sunday. While I like competition, I do not understand the philosophy of running two motorsports races head-to-head. So what do you think that was a split? You know, racing fans, some watched the Grand Prix and some watched NASCAR? Well, I think, I think it's a great day for NASCAR if you, if you buy into ratings and the importance of ratings. And I was always told when I was, you know, working full-time, you know, we always wanted to sit back and hear the ratings for our shows over the weekends and what our truck races were and what our qualifying shows were. And our guys always told us, if the show is informative and entertaining and accurate, don't worry about ratings. I, I was never told to be concerned about ratings in my 16 years at Fox. But... As I said before, if you want somebody to educate you or educate the listening audience from leaning right and turning left with Sadler and the Senator, if you want somebody to educate us on F1, you're going to have to find another co-host. 
because I know nothing <laughs> about F1 racing. Nothing. I thought I couldn't racing name was racing for you. Five drivers in F1. I just don't watch it. What about IndyCar? I mean, you watch that? My buddies like Jimmy Johnson are on it, and uh, I'm pretty close with Tony Kanaan and uh, Elio Castroneves is a friend of mine. I rent his house some you know, down in Florida when I go. And Yeah, me too. <laughs> F1, I just don't – I don't – I don't Not. I don't care. I don't I don't like it. I don't it doesn't interest me. I'm sorry. Okay, well, you know, the thing that brought that to my attention was I what I noticed was an overgorging of celebrities and I guess that's because it was Miami, but it was one a big of the event. They did. Yeah, a big event. Yeah. I mean, it got so big that they put I guess it was inside the Hard Rock Stadium or outside the Hard Rock Stadium right out there somewhere around there cuz the, the track was built around the Hard Rock Stadium there in Miami that they created a fake marina in the middle of the course where they put 10 real very expensive yachts and big boats, cigarette boats out there. But then they didn't fill it with water. They put plywood and painted it so it looked like water. I mean, that's ridiculous. I mean, uh, what the hell? Humpy Wheeler used to, you know, shoot people out of cannons and stuff. But but that just seems haughty-taughty to me and not kind of – that seems more European than American. I don't one, know. One thing you. I will say, NASCAR, you know, is keeping up with all that and watching all that. There is significant talk about in the near future NASCAR going to some street-style races. So don't be surprised whether that's a Chicago deal or whether it's Vegas or eventually Miami. Uh, you could certainly, I can see a time in the near future where NASCAR is going to have a similar type in event. <clears throat> but those, those events to me, it's more like being there for the social aspect of it. It's not being there to really watch the race you can only see if you're there in any given point on the track you can only see a couple hundred yards of the racetrack you know but that's kind of more of an event or more of a happening uh but i have to admit again that i watched not one second of the f1 race not one well i'm glad i thought of this question um i just was like the fake marina really got me all right so then since you hate well it's my turn uh, now oh okay well are you? Are you? Is this a great. different question, or is this an add-on? No, I, I asked you a question, and then you're like, ah, I could care less about F1." Well, so, you mean lie? Nothing out of that. It was like squeezing a dead lemon. Here. You mean lie? Yeah, that's what the show's all about. I thought we were just supposed to lie. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, no, I like your honest opinion, man. All right, look, I got one more. You got one more. Okay. I got a couple more. Um, I'm writing them down. I took it upon myself on social media this morning to offer people an opportunity to ask a question of us, whether it be on Twitter or Facebook, that they would like to hear us answer on the podcast. And if they, if we chose that question to be answered, we would send them a Sadler Stanley Racing official merchandise t-shirt. Nice. So. Did you get a question? Because you haven't gotten a sponsor. <laughs> did you do better with the question? Senator? Yeah. Army. I'm going to give you the Angie look now if you keep on. <laughs> uh, this question came up on Twitter from at AP Jameson. And I'd like for you to answer it, sir. And I will get in touch with Mr. AP Jameson and get an address so that uh, Mrs. Stanley, who's in charge of merchandise sales and operations <laughs> for Sadler Stanley Racing, can send this young person a, a uh, official T-shirt 
for saddles. She will go into the storage bins, which she has neatly arranged according to size and product. Pull out the appropriate size and product, and we'll send that right to you, Mr. Jameson. Or Miss Jameson. A.P. Jameson says, and I quote, I am thankful for all you guys are doing. Obviously, I am encouraged by the fact that the machines, meaning the skill game machines, get to stay until November. But I was wondering what the postponement means for your case overall. So just to catch people up, well, you, you take you take the whole thing, set the stage, and answer the question, if you will, sir. Well, thank you, Mr. or Ms. Jameson. Do you know whether it's a man or a, or a woman? Do you know? I don't. I'll look that up, get that information to the executive okay. producer. Okay. So, um, of course, we have the injunction. The injunction, we had a trial coming up here in late May. Uh, an injunction, a temporary injunction is good for six months. And then uh, after that, a final disposition hearing is heard. And then most likely we, we thought a permanent injunction would be imposed. The problem is, is that right now we have a budget in Virginia that is still outstanding, a two-year biennium budget. And occasionally, even though we're told not to, those that write the budget, the conferees in the budget will include legislation, not just numbers, not just appropriations, but actual legislative verbiage into the budget that has the same effect as a law because a budget is a law. At least it's good for two years. So the concern for both myself and you, Hermie, was that we could go in there in May, not have a budget done, win our court case, get a permanent injunction. They write something new. We have to start over with our lawsuit, go through the whole rigmarole again and try to, to get an injunction and go through the whole process. That That is uh, a, dupl- a duplication of effort that, quite frankly, uh, doesn't help the courts. They don't want to keep hearing the same things over and over, even in a different way as this would be. Uh, and so for judicial economy, that's the phrase we use. Uh, I thought it best uh, that we would continue the case to see if they tried to insert anything in the budget. And if they did, if they put in statutory language trying to ban skill or regulate or something like that, that we could then challenge that inside the already existing lawsuit that is pending uh, before the uh, Greensville County Circuit Court that where our original temporary injunction was granted. So believing that that's the proper course um, to move forward with, I then approached the Attorney General's office told them exactly what my concerns were. Uh, and they went and talked to the Commonwealth of Virginia, the governor's office of Virginia ABC, and they concurred and they agreed that, look, let's just keep the injunction in place. We'll continue the case out to November. That'll give us enough time to see if, uh, if the budget conferees attempt to try to rewrite the statutes again or try to make uh, ban skill games or make it illegal. We believe any way that they would try to write that is still unconstitutional for the same reasons and grounds that we put forth that the court accepted. And so we got together and we filed a consent motion. A consent motion is basically we agree that we this case should be continued. And then we picked a November date. So what happened was is the court entered the order, agreed to the consent motion, the attorney general and you, Hermie, made a motion together holding hands and saying, let's continue this off from our May trial date into November. I think it's November 2nd. Is that right, Herm? Okay, November 2nd. Uh, and let's continue the injunction as well to November 2nd. So the injunction continues the games. The only the games, the 6,000 games that were uh, previously registered under the Virginia ABC Alcoholic Beverage Control Uh, during the one year during the pandemic are the only games that are allowed to be played that are skill games. Every other game that might be a game of chance or doesn't have a yellow sticker or wasn't registered, and we've seen a proliferation of them and we've talked about this, those are still illegal games and do not get to get turned back on. 
but uh, right now that's the status of the lawsuit, and we anticipate going to court in November, unless we work it out with the Commonwealth. And if we do, then we'll try to settle the, man, the, the matter in favor of small businesses and for Virginia and for all uh, concerned. Uh, and so we're either going to go to trial November 2nd and get our permanent injunction, uh, or uh, we may find a resolution that, that is short of court but still gets us what we want and what we think is right. I'll only say this to add on to that. As the plaintiff in that lawsuit, all I'm really hoping we ultimately get to is a fair and equitable tax and regulation scheme for our skill games to operate in truck stops, convenience stores, and restaurants across the Commonwealth of Virginia, and that we, at some point, you mentioned holding hands, get in the same room with the people that are with Rosie's, with the casinos, charitable gaming, get everybody together and put our resources together to rid the illegal games in the Commonwealth of Virginia. That is the real enemy of all of us. And once the quicker we all realize that, the quicker we all realize that as casinos, Rosie's, charitable and skill, there's plenty of business in the Commonwealth of Virginia if we all stay in our lane and do the right things. And we all have a right to operate businesses as as uh, as we see fit, as long as we do it legally. And we all can work together to get rid of the bad guys, which is really the one thing that's hurting all of us and the enemy of all of us. So uh, that's all I'll say about that. But I appreciate the question, A.P. Jameson, and I'll be reaching out to get your address so that we can send you an official Sadler Stanley Racing shirt. And if you're nice enough, maybe I can get the senator to autograph it for you. <laughs> well, they want to wear it out in public, so maybe they should just take the shirt. The and shirt the is worth but... $30, and if Bill Stanley autographs it, it immediately becomes worth $5. <laughs> At a yard sale. At a yard sale. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. All right. Now, all right. Since we did this, and I kind of like this, Army. What do you think? I, you know, hey, while you're thinking about the next uh, – Racing question. I want to yeah. take a moment to remind everybody that Pacematic is an entertainment company which develops gaming software that players love to play and can use their skills to win every single time. Plus, these games of skill provide vital revenue to keep family owned businesses like bars, restaurants, convenience stores, and truck stops thriving, especially, Senator, right here in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Basematic, great company, great people, uh, great product, and uh, and uh, we appreciate their support, and we appreciate the people that support them. Who's going to take care of your family if something happens to you? What would they do without your income? If you don't have a plan, you need to go to GoliathLife.com. Get a quick quote for more than 20 carriers. You don't even have to leave the house. If you need a medical exam, they'll send somebody to your house or office. You're in total control. You pick the rates, you pick the payments, you pick the terms. You're in total control, but it gives you and your family peace of mind. What if something happens to your income? Hurry to GoliathLife.com. Hey, this is Bill Stanley, Hermie Sadler's sidekick on this podcast. But when I'm not in Richmond at the Capitol or doing this podcast, my real job for the past 27 years is as a trial attorney with the Stanley Law Group. Here at the Stanley Law Group, we represent our clients in every courthouse in the Commonwealth. No problem is too small for us to solve. No case is too big for us to win. 
whether it's criminal charges, traffic offenses, civil disputes, litigation matters of any sort, we handle it all. We make sure we treat every client like family because they are to us. Your problem is our problem. Your success is our success because we hate to lose more than we love to win. And believe me, we win a lot. Don't believe me? Go ask Kermie. I'm his favorite lawyer. Give us a call at 540-721-6028 and let us help you. Or visit our website at www.vastanleylawgroup.com. At the Stanley Law Group, we'll make sure that we are the lawyers that you swear by and not at. My last question for you. And I got to tell you something before we get to the last question. Yeah. So, you know, Brad, you know, Chad Monday, our executive producer. Yeah. Mm hmm. Wants to be a part, and I don't want to be a part. And then he brads everybody. He does the, you've been chatted. He did that to Ryan Newman, right? There, there is a potential, Hermie, that, that we are on this new platform that he found for us that would make our sounds better, uh, our, our interaction better if we we're not together. Because, you know, usually we put on a good show when we're together, and sometimes we just can't get together. We're two and a half hours apart. Right in the middle of your dissertation uh, about... Uh, Probably 30 seconds in, the whole thing, the whole platform shut down. You froze up. Uh, so hopefully we have the first hour and a half that we shot. Is that right, Brad? Do we have that? I'm getting ready to check. He's getting ready to check. So we're going to find out whether Brad and his magical soundboard. This show we just did is actually Correct. Correct. Because now the timer on this uh, platform that we're recording on has two minutes, 24 seconds instead of an hour and a half. Dude, really? Dude. All right, so I'm going to ask this. I'm going to ask my final question uh, for the turning left uh, questionnaire. This, is, this has been fun. It's been a lot of fun. I've enjoyed it. North Wilkesboro. Now, North Wilkesboro was one of the greatest all-time tracks in NASCAR. Historic track in all-time NASCAR. Had the best racers ever in America driving on it, winning on it. Uh what we saw when I was drafting that piece of legislation to create the Stock Car Heritage Trail in Virginia, uh, North Carolina un- undertook the same thing the, the year later, called it like the Moonshine Racing Tour. But then they got their governor to put about 14 to $16 million in funding to fix North Wilkesboro. And they say that Dale Jr., of course, when he got iRacing to go out there and put, I guess they mapped out the track and put it on iRacing, that that really got the efforts back together marcus smith has been uh, big time in that thing getting it back ready i think it's really exciting i follow it on social media on facebook but what they have announced is that they're hosting asphalt racing in august and then they're transitioning they're going to pull up that asphalt and they're going to transition and run dirt races in october of this year 2022 and then they're going to repave the track for 2023 but more importantly on tuesday uh, Smart Series, which you and I are a part of, and we have the uh, the 22 and the 16 and the 39. Uh, we're third in points right now. We've had three polls, a victory, top fives. The Smart Tour players, that is the tour itself, uh, who all the racers are going to run two 50-lap races on August 1st and August 2nd. I think that's a Tuesday and Wednesday, isn't that her? I think August first oh, is Monday. I can look. There's a practice session on the first, but I can look real quick. You might be right. Uh, August first would be practice. August second is Tuesday. August third is Wednesday. 
So they're going to have two 50-lap races. No gas, no tires, no changey, just a 50-lap shootout. Uh, and that will be the first tires to hit that asphalt tra- uh, track in, what, 12, 15 years, maybe even more than that? Yeah, uh, and I have to look back. I actually ran a late model stock car race there probably around 1990. Yeah, I saw I saw a Twitter. Um, it might have been on uh, our boy Chris Rice's Twitter when they took a picture of uh, North Wilkesboro, and you were right in the middle of it, of about a three-car pack. And it's a great picture, and you were in the 16. Same colors as the team, and I want to make sure that everybody knows R22, our race team, is not based on the colors of, say, Joey Logano and Penske or Pennzoil. Our colors are based on the historic colors of the Sadler Brothers. And I've got, a, I've got a surprise race. for you. Can I go ahead and tell you? Sure. We're building car number three for Sadler Stanley Racing that yours truly will be racing at Motor Mile and Martinsville. And I just awesome. spent a little bit extra of your money because I wanted the – car color to be exactly like the car color that i ran on my late models back at 1990 like at north wilkesboro it is a unique color it's called lunar yellow it's a gm color and i am getting the third car done in my yellow nice i'm glad that i could spend a little bit extra more of my money to make sure that you're more happy so that's great yeah the third car is getting built now what do you think about north wilkesboro what do you think about smart you know racers racing on that asphalt for the first time. What a historical night. I think it's going to be packed stands. I think it's being going to be great. But the great, the biggest question I have, Herm, because I know what your answer partly is, but I want you to give some analysis here is Jonathan Brown's going to run the 22. I think that's a given for the both of us. Who's going to be in the second car? And are you going to run? And would that be a Saddler in the second car? Yeah. Um, I think you and I agree totally that once we realized this race at North Wilkesboro was going to happen, that we both felt strongly that Jonathan Brown deserved and had earned the opportunity with us to race for SS Racing at North Wilkesboro. So we will have the 22 there with Jonathan Brown 100%. Uh, It's going to be a a great novelty, uh, a great honor for the drivers that are going to be a part of that race. you know, to race in there, and we think we both think Jonathan has earned the right uh, to be there. As far as the second car, uh, we're working on that. Uh, I think it's more likely than not that we'll have a second car on the track at North Wilkesboro, and I think it's more likely than not that it'll be a NASCAR driver that people know and will be excited to see driving I call it North Wilkesboro. But you'll have to stay tuned to the SS Racing social media channels on Facebook and Twitter when we're ready to make those announcements. Oh, you're not willing to even speculate? What about you, though? Would you run? I'm going to run. You and I had this conversation last night, and maybe you had dirt in your ears. I'm going to run at Motor Mile and Martinsville. So what about North Wilkesboro? You going to run? Senator, I'm going to run Motor Mile and Martinsville. And Jonathan Brown is going to run North Wilkesboro 100%. The rest of it is unknown. I'd love to see Sadler out there at North Wilkesboro. I mean, you know, you ran that. How, how often, how many times did you run that track? Only one your, time. In your career. Really? Yeah, I ran that What'd late model race there. It went off the schedule by the time that I had gotten to running some cup races. We, I never got a chance to. Let me tell you a funny story. I got to tell you a funny North Wilkesboro story. So we're there for that weekend. I either 1990, 1991, 
We ran late models there on Saturday. Cup guys ran Sunday. We were driving, me and my crew guys, including Chris Rice, we were driving, you mentioned in some other blunder earlier on the show today, Chevy Chase National Lampoon's Vacation. That's right, Clark Griswold. Clark W. Griswold drove the Metallic P Family Truckster. Damn fine automobile. We drove a car like that, a station wagon with the wood panel sides and all that, one that had the back seat in the, in the station wagon facing backwards. We drove that to North Wilkesburg to take my crew. So my guys took the bread truck and the trailer with the car. We drove an old station wagon with the crew. We practiced and qualified on Friday. We're racing on Saturday. We drive in early Saturday morning and park our car. We go through, you know, I'm excited. My whole crew's excited. We're racing North Wilkesboro. Well, <clears throat> while our car is parked all day, apparently they called on the PA system all day long. The driver of a, you know, 1986 Oldsmobile station wagon, please come to the press box. You know, apparently they call for us all day. None, none of us ever heard it. Apparently we parked our car in a no parking zone <clears throat> and apparently our car was parked in a no parking zone where they couldn't get a record to it. But to make a long story short, by the time the race was over on Saturday, now you got to remember the cup race was still coming up on Sunday. By the time I got finished racing on Saturday, going back to look for my car, there was a full fledged banquet frozen foods hospitality area built around my car <laughs> we could not get our car out until sunday evening after the race was over jimmy spencer at the time was driving for whoever his but his sponsor at the time was banquet frozen foods so they could not get my car out of the area they built the banquet frozen foods hospitality villa around my station wagon and it was a centerpiece for that hospitality venue all afternoon Saturday and all day Sunday. True story. Uh, and did you rename that uh, station wagon the Hungry Man? After Isn't that? that glamorous? Yeah, that is. That is really glamorous. And I'm sure uh, a lot of people that came up there to get food kind of said, what's the car doing here? But so that's my. Did they fit it into their whole, you know, spiel or did they just. Oh, yeah, they used like, it. Jimmy Spencer would put a drink on it while he's talking to people and. It was like a piece of furniture in the Banquet Frozen Foods hospitality area. <laughs> My station. I mean, the closest I can get to that is I had a client one time that uh, had been drinking and uh, drove through a convenience store and ended up in the freezer section. Uh, and he had a bunch of TV dinners and French fry bags and stuff all around his car. And so um, when we showed the car, you know, those are serious charges and it's not a good thing. But when we showed the car as a picture on uh, to the uh, jury... Uh, they started laughing, and then they were. They seemed more concerned with uh, picking out whether that was a bag of peas uh, than they were about what had happened, and they were all laughing. So uh, those things do happen, and uh, it's at look, least making yours, memories. Making memories. Yeah, yours. Yours was legitimately parked there, didn't go through the front of the glass of the convenience store. So there you go. All right, that's all I got, man. I'm I'm out. But look, we've got we've got very exciting things. I mean, everybody who's listening to this podcast. 
Uh, go to the North Wilkesboro website. You got to get those tickets, man. There's only one first night. There's only one first race when it comes back to North Wilkesboro. And, and I think it's going to be exciting because it's smart modified. It's your open wheel modified tour. You've got everybody from Jonathan Brown to the Myers brothers. Uh, uh, Gerstner is going to be there. Probably Hirschman. He'll show up. It's going to be a heck of a race. Those two races, 50 lappers it's gonna, going for It's going to be so exciting to see that place come back to life. And we're, going to be exciting for Sadler Stanley Racing for us to be a part of that. Well, and I think it'll probably have tens of thousands of people. It'll be, you know, you're talking about midweek before the uh, NASCAR people head out. I got to see if I can find the station wagon and go down the park it in the infield again. Hey, that's a great idea. We can do our podcast right from the uh, family truckster. Family <laughs> awesome. Family truckster. Damn fine Dude, bring them. Bring a microwave or one of those kind of slow ovens and we can just, uh, or easy bake ovens and we can just start making banquet hey, so hungry meals for everybody. We're getting ready to wrap the show up, but how long before we know if we actually recorded everything for the last hour and a half? <laughs> well, uh, we're going to find that out uh, from Brad uh, here pretty shortly, and everybody's going to find out uh, if this podcast is on that we actually found I've it. Never so threatened, I've never threatened violence with Brad <laughs> I to <have>. this point. <laughs> Do it. But if he's wasted an hour and a half of my life on what I thought yeah. was a really – good episode of leaning right and turning left with Sadler and the Senator powered by Pacematic, a new kind of a new format for us. And we covered a lot of topics. Yeah. Brad, he better be thinking about how to poop a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Brad, I'm with you, man. I mean, the thing just kind of, kind of gigged up, he froze up and then it just hit reset. And I looked down at this, the, we have a timer at the bottom of these uh, screens. We can see each other. It's on his computer. And it started over at 00012. And I'm like, oh, no. And it's not up on our recording thing. So work your magic, Brad, because um, you're going to have to poop a podcast if we don't have it. He's on it. He may be on the toilet, but he's on it. <laughs> well, listen, Senator, as always, this has, been, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, I think we covered a lot of topics that people want to hear about and they're that are important to a lot of people uh not only across the commonwealth but across the uh the united states of america so always have fun with you partner and this was a lot of fun and with you always and and i think hopefully uh the rest of the people are listening to this podcast now that brad recovered it used his computer computer genius as gen y uh only know how to do uh before they go home and eat their tide pods so we're going to count on Brad that this is going to be a recording uh, that is one for the ages. But, man, I've enjoyed this. And, and ladies and gentlemen, you see what basically uh, Hermie and I do at night. Uh, we talk uh, on the phone like this a lot. And I think we're going to have some real excitement at North Wilkesboro, August 1st and 2nd. Y'all better be down there. And we'll see who that surprise racer is if it ain't going to be Hermie. Uh, but, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Virginia State Senator Bill Stanley, and I'm leaning right. I'm former NASCAR driver and Fox Sports analyst Hermie Sadler, and I'm turning left. Thank you for listening to another episode of Leaning Right and Turning Left with Sadler and the Senator, powered by Pacematic. We'll see you next week. Save the show, Brad. Save the show. Get the house you want with the payment you want at buywithconrad.com. You don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket to do this at buywithconrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. The first step to buying a house is buywithconrad.com.